Hey, what's up? It's your boy, Starking Gaming, you know, co-host of a wonderful podcast called The Kingdom Talks, and also I have my own podcast called Starking Gaming Presents. Now you're probably wondering what this is all about. Well, I just want to mention, King Uno does canvases, and you can have a canvas for any occasion. My grandma just passed away July 8th, 2023, and we're actually going to get one done just for her celebration of life. You can get a, a canvas for any occasion really any occasion and they're very reasonably priced and they're amazing quality. I own a few of them myself and they came at clutch for my wife's birthday. You can get it for birthdays, holidays like Christmas, Valentine's Day, Easter, Mother's Day, Father's Day, whatever. You can even get one for 4th of July, Cinco de Mayo, whatever you are celebrating, you can get one for. You can get one for a coworker just because they've been doing a great job. Seriously, you can get a canvas for literally anything and they are very reasonably priced. For 15 by 14 which can be seen in all of my streams, is $40 plus shipping. Now, I say plus shipping. If you want expedient shipping, it's going to cost you a little bit more. But generally speaking, it's not going to be outrageously priced. You'll probably spend about another 10 bucks on shipping. Now, for a 16 by 20 it's $60 plus shipping. Again, depending on where you live and everything, it's going to vary. A 16 by 24 is actually, get this, $69 plus shipping. You will have to discuss the shipping cost with King Uno about this because it's all going to vary on where you live and how fast you would like this, this shipping. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, how do I get a hold of one of y'all or even to see quality? What you can do is you can message my gaming page at Star King Gaming on Facebook or you can go to King Uno Canvases on Facebook or King Uno Photography Plus. Any one of those ways is a wonderful way to get a canvas done. And if you mention my name, you may even get a discount. I don't know. We'll see. There'll be promos coming up here pretty soon. There's going to be all kinds of things. There'll be buy one, get one freeze and everything, you guys. Just, again, mention my name and you may get a discount. Tell them that Starking Gaming 86 sent you and see what happens. Worst case scenario, you pay the regular price. But, again, go to King Uno Canvases. On Facebook or message my gaming page, Starking Gaming, on Facebook and see if you can get a canvas done. Like I said, you can get it literally for any occasion. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to all of our podcasts. Hello and welcome to the first edition of Starking Gaming Presents, a podcast that will be covering the life and sadly death of most of these former athletes who have either been handed a bad hand or just simply was dealt a bad hand from the start. I will be covering people from Dell Earnhardt to Junior Seau to so many more. This will be a solo podcast for this is the first ever episode, by the way. First ever episode I'm doing solo. We're going to see how it goes. Today I will be covering the life and death of Freddie Lane and Chris Henry. So here we go. Let's get it done. Freddie Lane was an up-and-coming NFL running back who rushed for over 2,000 yards in three seasons with Carolina Panthers and technically was on the Colts. I'll explain the details soon. The Colts were hoping to relieve some of the pressure off of their legendary running back, Edgar James, who just rushed for over 1,500 yards the previous season. As a matter of fact, his rookie season. The Colts went 13-3 and lost a wild-card game to the Titans, who would end up losing in the Super Bowl 
to the Rams. The Colts traded Freddie Lane for linebacker Spencer Reed, who played his first year with the Panthers, but would never play another game in the NFL and would be cut before the season. However, Freddie Lane would also never play a game with the Colts, sadly. Freddie Lane had an amazing upbringing. He was born in Franklin, Tennessee, where he was destined to be fast. Lane attended Franklin High, where his senior year he rushed for over 1,000 yards, averaging 7.5 yards a carry. He would later have his number 28 retired. Lane would end up going to Lane College, which is in Jackson, Tennessee. It's about a two-hour drive from Franklin. Jackson, Tennessee is... I I said two-hour drive, but it's not just an easy two-hour drive. Also, this particular college, Lane, is a Division II college. So he wasn't going to get the recognition that you would get in a Division I. Like, let's say if he went to Tennessee State or Tennessee being a volunteer. However, he would break records, and the records still stand to this day. He is currently the all-time leading rusher at that college with 3,612 yards. 1,853 yards were in his junior year, where he actually earned some recognition for the Harlan Hill Trophy, which is a Division II MVP in a sense. This particular year would be won by Ronald McKinnon, who had 139 tackles, 11 which were for losses, four picks, and four sacks. McKinnon would later play with the Arizona Cardinals and New Orleans Saints in 2005. From 1996 to 2004, though, he was with the Cardinals. Freddie Lane was ready for the NFL. Now, here's the problem, though. The NFL 1997 draft had over... Three or had three running backs with over 10,000 yards. I apologize. This draft was known for the running backs. In fact, those three running backs were Warwick Dunn, Corey Dillon, Tiki Barber. This draft had more than 10 Pro Bowls, four Super Bowl rings just from the draft class, and another three Pro Bowls and Super Bowl ring from Priest Holmes, who went undrafted. The Carolina Panthers' first round pick was select Ray Kurth, who had a very bad path himself and will definitely be covered on a future podcast. In 1996, the Panthers were 12-4. and four. They had a healthy Kerry Collins, Hall of Famer, Sam Mills, and Kevin Green, who are both sadly no longer with us. But here we are, 1997, Lane's rookie year, and sadly the Panthers will go 7-9. and nine. However, Lane did exceptionally well, especially for a rookie. In Don Camper's office, he had 182 rushes for 809 yards, seven touchdowns, and would become the number one running back. The 1998 season would be a struggle for Kerry Collins. He started the first four games going 0-4. On October 13, 1998, Collins would be waived, and the Saints would claim him off waivers, and then they would waive themselves Jake DeLome, who would become a household name for Carolina Panthers fans later. In fact, he led him to a Super Bowl back in 2003, losing to Tom Brady and the Patriots. Anyway, the Panthers, who had eight Pro Bowlers before, with Wesley Walls, the tight end, Kerry Collins, Michael Bates, who's a special team, I guess you could call punt return, kick return specialist, Sam Mills, Kevin Green, Lamar Lathan, just a whole running back, or linebacking core right there alone was, was Pro Bowlers, Eric Davis, and the kicker, John Casey. Then they went down 
to one with Wesley Walls being the only Pro Bowler. However, in 1998, Kevin Green would return. Sadly, it wasn't enough as the Panthers would go 4-12. and 12, And Don Campers would be let go. After the loss of Collins, Steve Berlin would become the starting quarterback and would go 4-8. and eight. Not bad, considering they started off 0-4. However, Lane would see his numbers go a little bit down. Even though he had more rushes, he only would have 700 and 17 yards, five touchdowns. However, this team was well known for its receiving core, with Rocket Ishmael having over a thousand yards, Mashan Muhammad, 941 yards, Wesley Walls, 506 yards. So, I mean, they were more known for their, their passing than they were rushing. In 1999, as I mentioned, Caper would be gone, and they would sign two time Super Bowl winning coach, George Seifert who was, as a coach, 98-30 and 30 during the regular season, 10-5 and 5 during the postseason. They hired him with the hopes of bringing them back to the playoffs. I mentioned Steve Berline would was the starter. The Panthers would sign former Pro Bowler and former 49er backup Steve Bono. And then Seifert wanted a quarterback from the Denver Broncos named Jeff Lewis, who sadly has since passed away of an overdose in 2013. Berline was a mediocre quarterback at best, having a 30-35 and 35 record as a starter. But he would have his best season ever. He would throw for 4,436 yards and 36 touchdowns with 15 interceptions. However, they would have a mediocre 8-8 eight and eight season. But it is better than the 4-12 and 12 season they had previous, but not good enough for the playoffs. Lane had his worst rushing season thus far, with 115 rushes for 4 175 and one touchdown. However, this would be his best season receiving. Prior to the season, he had only had 20 receptions for 113 yards. This particular season, he had 23 receptions for 163 yards. Going into the 2000 season, the Panthers would move on and go with Tim Bakatua, something rather. I cannot pronounce that name. Tim Bakatua, I believe, is pretty close as their running back. With the offense that was pass first, Seifert wanted to move on from Lane, and the Colts needed a backup to add some depth to their already pretty much Hall of Fame running back with Egan James, who rushed for over 1,500 yards, as I mentioned, as a rookie. But the Colts were led by Peyton Manning, Marvin Harrison, James, as I mentioned, Coach Jim Mora, and they were already well-established. So the Colts were like, you know what? Let's go see if we can get a running back. So what did they do? April 21st, they would trade Spencer Reed, a special team linebacker, for Freddie Lane. Lane was looking for an opportunity to play with a legendary team, but sadly, it came to an end. On July 6th, Freddie just got home, and his wife, Deidre, would shoot and kill Freddie as he walked in the door. Freddie was 24 years old. His key was still in the keyhole. She would shoot him twice with a 12-gauge shotgun, once in the chest and the other in the back of the head. She claimed self-defense, however, she would be known as the abusive one. Freddie Lane had a life insurance policy, and the judge ruled her guilty because of her actions were premeditated and deliberate. She has since been released from prison in 2009. Freddie Lane was a dual-threat, speedy running back that will never have opportunity to make the Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not saying he was a Hall of Famer, but we will never know. His 
life was cut short. He was in the prime of his life. Sadly, the Colts would go 10-6 and six and lose to Miami in the wild card game. Egner James rushed for 1,700-plus yards that season, 13 touchdowns. It just wasn't enough. Freddie would leave behind two daughters. Sadly, very sad. That was the life and death of Freddie Lane Jr. Now here we are to the Chris Henry story. I wish it was a happier story, but it's a sad story with kind of a happy ending. Maybe a little bit happier than the Freddie Lane story. Chris Henry, who played his whole career with the Bengals, was kicked off the team at one point for his run-in with a loss, but he was brought back. He is the first active player to be announced with CTE. And I'll explain all this later on in the podcast. You guys will hear what I mean by the first active player to be announced with it. Because technically, the first player to be announced with it was Mike Webster, who played over 200 games in his career with the Kansas City Chiefs and mainly with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Chris Henry's life would be rather tragic, but to quote Robert Frost... He said, in three words, I can sum up everything I've learned about life. It goes on. A quote that would actually be very true. And I'll explain all this later. Chris Henry was born May 17, 1983, in Belchassie, Louisiana, a small town well-known for the Naval Air Base called Naval Air Station Joint Reserve Base. As a small-town kid, friends and family knew Chris Henry was going to be somebody special. He was given the nickname Slim because he was fast and agile. He had a great upbringing with his grandmother, always made sure that he ate good, making him grits, sausage, eggs, and other southern delicacies. Sadly, he would lose his grandmother, who passed away when he was in middle school. In high school, Chris was a major basketball fan. In fact, I mentioned his grandma. She actually bought him Tracy McGrady's shoes as a kid. When he reached high school, he was six foot four and was a track star standout. He was fast but wanted to play basketball. However, one of his friends knew he was actually pretty good in basketball. Supposedly, this friend, who was a very close friend of his, the quarterback of the high school football team, pushed him into playing football. I mean, it makes sense. In the NFL, there's over 50 players on a roster versus versus the NBA, where there's less than 20. The supposed friend was, as I mentioned, the starting football, our starting quarterback on the football team. After begging and pleading with Henry, he finally gave in, and the rest would be history in a sense. Henry was extremely competitive and quickly became a pretty well-known player within the state. And however, this team would actually be pretty well-known in the state as well. Henry played both sides of the field. He was actually a very good receiver as well as a defensive back. But sadly, he would develop asthma, but it would not stop him. He actually has over a 1,000 yards receiving it in his senior year. This is crazy. 24 touchdowns, and on the defensive side, he has 73 tackles, 6 picks, which 4 of them were pick 6s. The team would make it to the Louisiana AAA State Championship, but would lose. However, it got him the recognition he deserved. As I said, it it was a loss, but it wasn't a complete loss. He got accepted into West Virginia University, where he would redshirt his freshman season. His sophomore year, well, he went off. 
man. I mean, he went off. He had 41 receptions for 1,006 yards, 10 touchdowns, and he looked like he was going to shine. However, his junior year, it wasn't as good, but it still wasn't terrible. He had 52 receptions, 872 yards, 12 touchdowns. During this time frame, he would actually make friends with a guy named Adam Pacman Jones, who played 13 seasons in the NFL, one Pro Bowl season, and would actually make a huge difference in Chris Henry's afterlife. And I'll explain all this later. Um, Henry would have 1,878 yards, which is still in the top 10 at West Virginia University. However, it came with some issues. He was once ejected from a game against Rutgers for unsportsmanlike conduct penalties and would be suspended the last game of the season, to which his coach would say he's an embarrassment to himself and the program. His college numbers goes as follows. He had 93 receptions for 800, or 1,878 yards, as I mentioned, 22 touchdowns. He had a total of six games where he had over 100 yards receiving. He would announce for the NFL season, or NFL draft, after following a loss against Florida State in the Gator Bowl, a 30 to 18 loss to be exact. He was listed as six foot four, 197 pounds soaking wet. He ran a four five in the 40 yard dash, and he also had a 36 inch vertical. He was good, but he wasn't great. But he was actually good enough to be a third round pick by the Cincinnati Bengals at 83rd. His best friend, Adam Jones, was drafted by Tennessee Titans with the sixth overall pick. Chris Henry was the 13th wide receiver picked from the draft, and I'm going to list the following receivers here in a bit, in a minute. Well, let's get right to it, actually. The other receivers, starting with the first pick, well, not the first overall pick, the third overall pick, I should say, Braylon Edwards, who was a one-time Pro Bowler, and as I mentioned, third pick overall, had 359 catches for 5,522 yards. And 40 touchdowns. Troy Williamson, who had 87 catches for 1,131 yards, was drafted with the seventh overall pick. And I'm just going to say it nicely. Who? Mike Williams had 127 catches. He was the 10th uh, pick of the, the draft. When healthy, he was actually one of the decent receivers out there. Um, but unfortunately, he got drafted by the Lions. And the Lions had a bad running with bust in that time frame. He was... Uh, Part of a bad group of receivers that the Lions would end up having. Charlie Rogers, Rustin Beast, was one of them. But he had over 1,500 yards with 1,526 yards. And like I said, when healthy, he was actually not bad. And that was the 10th pick. With the 21st pick of the first round, Jacksonville picked up, Jacksonville Jaguars picked up Matt Jones, a college quarterback who converted a wide receiver. He would end up with 166 catches for 2,153 yards and 15 touchdowns. The next pick, Mark Clayton. He was the 22nd pick. He had a career total of 260 catches, 3,400 yards, to be exact, 3,448 yards, 14 touchdowns. He was a decent receiver, but not really great by any means. Now, the next pick would actually be great. The 27th overall pick, Roddy White, was one of the best Falcon receivers ever. He spent his whole career with the Falcons. Four-time Pro Bowler, 808 receptions, 10,863 yards, 63 touchdowns. Not bad, especially for a 27th overall pick. Reggie Brown was the first pick for wide receivers in the second round. He was the 35th overall pick. He had 177 catches for 2,574 yards, 17 touchdowns. Not bad, but never a Pro Bowler, so not great. 
Michael Bradley, who I thought was going to be low-key good, he was 39th pick, 92 catches for 1,283 yards, 9 touchdowns. I remember playing Madden, and I thought some of these guys were going to be legends, especially this next guy coming up, Roscoe Parrish. Man, he was a wonderful pickup, I thought. And he actually would be pretty good, but not as a receiver. He was a 55th pick overall. He was known for his punt return, kick returns. But he had 134 receptions for 1,502 yards, 7 touchdowns. However, he had 2,691 yards uh, returning for 3 touchdowns with that. He was a good return man, but outside of that, he wasn't nothing to brag about. I loved him in the Madden games, though, probably because he was quick. The next guy was a 58th overall pick who never played a single game in the NFL, but had an amazing career as a, as a realtor. Green Bay wasted a pick on him. His name's Terrence Murphy, and I'm going to say it nicely. Who? Now, the next guy I'm not going to say too much about because I want to cover him in long form in a podcast. Um, future coming up. His name is Vincent Jackson. Someone, like I said, I will cover very, very shortly in long form. He was a 61st pick out of the draft. Three-time pro, pro bowler. He played with San, the then San Diego Chargers, Tampa Bay Bucks as well. He had a great career. 540 receptions for 9,080 yards and 57 touchdowns. Not bad. This next guy I actually thought was going to be low-key decent. He was great return man, but never really was a great receiver. He was the first pick out of the third round. Um, at the 68th overall pick, it was Courtney Roby. And as I mentioned, his receiving skills were actually pretty decent, but it was his return skills that he was known for. He had 26 receptions, 343 yards, one touchdown. However, he would have 3,007 yard, uh, return yards and one touchdown. He also has a Super Bowl ring with the Saints. And then there was the 83rd pick by the Cincinnati Bengals. They selected Chris Henry. Now, the Bengals had a decent squad. They had Carson Palmer at the quarterback. When healthy, was great. Uh, Rudy Johnson was a 1,000-yard rusher. Uh, Chad Johnson had a great career, obviously. TJ Hismajada had a great career as well. Now, you put all these together, and they had a pretty decent defense. Um, and honestly, I thought a very good coach with Marvin Lewis. However, after a mediocre 8-8 and eight season... The Bengals were looking to advance and to get further, and that's when they would draft Chris Henry and a few other players. In fact, Henry's rookie season, he would actually kind of kind of go pretty off as far as the, the team would, I should say. They would go 11-5. Not bad. Henry would have his first receptions in Week 2. He was actually targeted four times and would catch four catches for 45 yards. Not bad for, first, for his first game, really, in the NFL. With a healthy Carson Palmer, this NFL team, the Bengals, would actually look decent in the NFL. I mean, overall, when he was healthy, they were pretty decent. However, Chris Henry would get in some trouble. Henry was pulled over the night of December 15th for speeding and would get arrested for possession of marijuana and driving without a valid license. He pleaded guilty to avoid any jail time. That was just in his rookie season, and it would get a little worse after the season ended. I'll explain here a little bit. His rookie season, he would end up with 31 receptions for a total of 422 yards and six touchdowns. They made it to the playoffs. However, they would lose to Pittsburgh Steelers 31-17. He would have one catch for 66 yards in his first ever playoff game. Thus, ending the season, as I mentioned, they lost. But Henry wasn't done. Henry would get arrested for gun charges, including assault with a firearm on January 30th. And all this apparently while wearing his number 15 Bengals jersey. 
On April 29th, he allowed three girls ages 18, 16, 15 to drink with him. Allegedly, and I'm going to say very, very thoroughly, allegedly, sexually assaulting the 18-year-old girl. However, the girl would retract her story, thus getting her arrested for filing a false police report. Lastly, June 3rd, Henry was arrested, or pulled over, I'm sorry, for driving drunk, supposedly, for suspected drunk driving on Interstate 275 in Ohio. He submitted a 0.092 blood alcohol level, which is 0.012 over the legal limit in the Cincinnati area. Well, actually in Ohio. That was just his rookie year. After an amazing 11-5 and season, they wanted more. But they didn't really make any changes because, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. After a week four loss to the Patriots, NFL would suspend Henry for two games, violating the substance abuse and personal conduct policies. He was forbidden to partake in practices. However, he was allowed to go to team meetings. They started off 3-0. They would lose to the Patriots in week four, as I mentioned. And then during the suspension, they would lose one game to the Bucks, but they would beat the Panthers without Henry in a very close game, 17-14. But in his return, he'd actually do pretty well, but just not good enough. He was targeted seven times for five catches, 81, of, 81 yards, and a 55-yard touchdown. However, they would lose. The following week, they would lose to Baltimore, 26-20, to 20, where he had two catches, including a 71-yard bomb. The following week, against the San Diego Chargers, the Chargers would come from behind to beat the Bengals after Chad Johnson balled out. Get this, 11 catches, 260 yards, two touchdowns, where Henry had two catches for 18 yards, including an 11-yard touchdown. The Bengals were up 38-28 to heading into the fourth quarter, but would lose 49-3. to they got they got their butts kicked. They got outscored twenty one to three in the fourth quarter. Now the Bengals were playing mediocre at best. However, they would get hot as they started off four and five. They would actually win four in a row, going eight and five. Henry during that time frame would have nine catches for ninety six yards, three touchdowns. Now here we are. We're eight and five as a team, but we're down basically two games to Baltimore, who were led by Steve McNair. So they had to perform. However. The Bengals could not perform. They would actually lose the final three games of the season. Baltimore would actually win their final three games, and thus they would lose the division. The last three games ago was like this. They would lose 31-16 to against the Colts. Henry was targeted four times, zero receptions. Against the Broncos, they would, they would score a touchdown with 41 seconds. However, they would miss the extra point, losing 23-24. to Henry had three catches, 30 yards, including a touchdown. However, he was actually targeted nine times. The last game was against Big Ben and the Steelers. I mentioned it for a reason. Big Ben threw a 67-yard touchdown in overtime, and they would lose 23-17. Henry had four receptions, 124 yards, and a touchdown. He was targeted seven times. Now he would get in a little bit more legal trouble. I mentioned about the having the girls on underage after being caught serving underage girls drinks he would plead guilty to a misdemeanor violation to the city ordinance commonly referred to as the keg law now i'm not too familiar with laws and everything i kind of did a little bit of research um basically it's it's something to do 
with every every town, every county, I guess I, I think it actually is, they have their own cake laws. Um, he would actually be forced to serve jail time. Um, it was supposed to be 90 days. However, it was reduced down to, to just two days he spent in, in jail. So it wasn't terrible for him, but it still wasn't good. He served, like I said, a wowing two days in jail. However, Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, would suspend Henry for eight games. Now the next season, Henry suspended for eight games, and sadly this season did not go well. The Bengals struggled majorly. They were 2-6, and six and their defense was struggling. Even worse, Rudy Johnson was struggling majorly. Before his return, though, allegedly, Chris Henry assaulted a valet attendant in Newport, Kentucky. His first game back, it would be well missed, but it was just a little too late. He would actually, he would have four catches for 99 yards and a 21-7 win against Baltimore. The Bengals, the final eight games of the season, would go five and three. However, they would finish seven and nine, missing the playoffs. Henry and the Bengals would struggle the next season because Carson Palmer would get hurt, only playing in four games, and injuries would be kind of a focal point. Um, injuries to the receiving core, such as Caldwell, would get hurt. Uh, Hushmanzada didn't play 100% all season. Same with Johnson. So they had injuries, and the team relied on Ryan Fitzpatrick, who, if you know him, he's actually not a terrible quarterback, but at that time he wasn't as well-known as he is now. They would also have Cedric Benson, who had an amazing season, but it just wasn't enough. On March 31st, before the next season would start, Henry punched a man he claimed thought owed him money and threw a beer bottle at him. Henry was arrested the next day. He was actually waived by the Bengals. I mentioned this for a major reason. He was waived by the Bengals. The owner, Mike Brown, said Henry forfeited his opportunity to be a Bengal on April 7th. Henry would call Michael Irvin, Hall of Fame wide receiver, who helped Adam Jones when he was having some issues to discuss how to clean up his act. The Bengals receiving core was a lot banged up going into this preseason with Johnson, Chad Johnson, that is, TJ Hishmazada, and Andre Caldwell all not 100% and not sure if they would be ready for the NFL season. The Bengals got desperate, so they hired Chris Henry to a two-year deal but Chris Henry was forced to serve a four-game suspension. However, he was ready to play. He played in 12 games, had 19 catches for 220 yards and two touchdowns. And the Bengals would actually go 4-11-1. You know, so, I mean, they did struggle. I mean, but it is what it is. They were dealing with a lot of injuries. And now, the sad year. The year that changed everything for Chris Henry. Chad Johnson and Palmer were healthy. Benson was balling out. The team was looking up until week nine. Henry would make a 20-yard reception but would break his forearm, thus placing him on the IR. The Bengals at this point were 6-2. and two. Henry had had 12 receptions for 236 yards, two touchdowns. Here we go. On December 16th, Henry and his wife would be in a domestic dispute. Henry would actually fall out of his wife's moving truck. Supposedly, there was a domestic dispute. And supposedly, he had actually jumped out of her car. And I'm, I'm saying supposedly because nobody can really confirm or deny anything. You know, really, I don't know if Chris Henry jumped. I wasn't a part of the story or the police report. The following day, Charlotte announced that Chris Henry had died from his 
injuries that he's taken place out of moving out of the car. He actually was suffer blunt force trauma, tragically dying at the age of 26. His fiance was not charged for any of these actions because they, there was no signs of driving recklessly or excessive speed. During week 15, the NFL played tribute to Henry because that was his number he wore and the NFL was number 15. During that moment of silence that they would do, Chad Johnson was seen weeping uncontrollably prior to the Bengals game. In 2010, it was found that Henry had CTE. And since he was an active player when he died, he's the first active player to technically be diagnosed with CTE while being active. Now, I mentioned about something about life going on. Henry's mother would donate his organs, and he would actually save the lives of four people. And I mentioned Pac-Man Jones earlier. Well, Pac-Man Jones did something amazing. He adopted Chris Henry's kids, including Chris Henry Jr., who looks just like his dad and is just like his dad. I mean, identical. And hopes to play in the NFL one day just like his father, and maybe even be better than his father. Only time will tell. Chris Henry had a total of 119 catches for 1,826 yards and 21 touchdowns. Now, he was not a Hall of Famer, but who's to say he couldn't have been, wouldn't have been. He was only 26 years old when he lost his life. That concludes this portion of the podcast. Now we're going to do something even better. I'm going to do a surprise. I wasn't going to do this, but I got to do it. Now, I wasn't going to do this, but I decided to add a third part to this podcast because I loved what I was able to get done. This one really kind of hit home for me. I grew up watching this guy play. He was actually one of my favorite players to watch. Being a Lions fan, we didn't have a lot to cheer for, but being local to the Bay Area, we got to see a lot of the San Diego Chargers games, especially against the Raiders. And so I got to watch this guy play a lot. And that is Junior Seau. Um, I really don't want to commend what he did, but I also kind of understand why he did what he did. And I think that once you guys hear everything that I say, it would actually make a lot of sense to you guys. Here we go. Junior Seau was known as one of the best linebackers of all time. He played almost 20 seasons in the NFL and was one of the most passionate players in the NFL. He played with the then San Diego Chargers, who now moved to Los Angeles, Miami Dolphins, and New England Patriots. He's a 12-time Pro Bowler who never won a Super Bowl. Crazy. He was one of the most feared, but at the same time, one of the most loved players in the NFL. Sadly, Junior would take his own life May 2nd, 2012. Let's get into the life and death of Junior Seau. Junior Seau was born January 19th. 1969 in Oceanside, California. He was the fifth child. His father was a rubber factory warehouse worker, and he also was a school custodian. He did two jobs at the same time. Sale and his family would actually move to American Samoa, and Sale wouldn't learn English until he was about seven years old. At home, he grew up not having a lot of money, and growing up in a two-bedroom house with three other brothers, it was a little challenging. Because, as I mentioned, they also had a sister who she would have her own room. The boys would actually end up getting the garage. At a very young age, his father knew that Junior Seau was going to be something because he was quick 
and was built differently. He just didn't know he'd become a Hall of Famer. Seau attended Oceanside High, where he actually lettered in basketball, track and field, and, of course, football. Seau was a starting linebacker and also tight end. Living in San Diego County, he actually got a lot of recognition from San Diego. So Chargers knew of him before he even went to college. Crazy to believe. After graduating high school, Seau wanted to be close to home, and USC was the best college close to home. And when I say close to home, it was less than two hours from his house. Now, here we are. Junior Seau is at USC. However, he would miss his freshman season due to the fact that he scored a 690 on his SAT. Back then, it was required that you had over 700. Crazy to believe that he missed it by 10 points. He would actually be labeled a dumb jock by some of his peers. Seau would later letter his two final seasons posting 19 sacks and the 1989 season en route to becoming the f- a first team All-American. Seau would s- forego his senior season and declare for the NFL draft. Now the crazy thing is is he foregoed his senior season just because he knew he could get drafted high by the San Diego Chargers. Smart man. He wanted to be drafted by his hometown team in the 1990 draft who they actually had the fifth pick. And it's crazy to believe, Seau was actually the second linebacker pick. So let's go over the, the draft real quick. First pick was actually Jeff George by the Indianapolis Colts. Now, George was at best a temporary starter. And what I mean by that is you would, you would want him as you're getting somebody ready. Like you draft a quarterback. You want Jeff George there because he was a decent quarterback. But, I mean, when there was other guys out there like Emmett Smith, John Randall, Shannon Sharp, Cortez Kennedy, who are all Hall of Famers. Of course, Cortez Kennedy is no longer with us. Um, and also Leroy Butler and then Sale were all drafted behind him. You know, he kind of did look like a bust, but he ended up having um, a total of 2,700 or 27,000 yards, 602 total yards, actually. 27,602. Um, 154 touchdowns and 113 interceptions. Not great. But, I mean, he was considered a bust, and I kind of see it with Emmett Smith being picked in the 17th overall. The next would be another bust, Blair Thomas, a running back who would only have 2,600 yards, or 2,200 yards, 2,200, 3,600 yards. 2,236. That's crazy. 2,236 yards. That I mean, just like... I almost feel like Emma Smith had that in one season. I mean, it's just crazy to think that he was the 17th overall pick. And unfortunately, the Jets got a bust with Blair Thomas. Unfortunately, he would only have seven career touchdowns. Just crazy. I mean, I, I'm still just reading this stat line. Just mind blown. The third pick, as we mentioned earlier, defensive tackle, eight-time Pro Bowler, who is no longer with us, Cortez Kennedy. He played his whole career with the Seattle Seahawks. 668 tackles, 58 sacks, which is a little bit more sacks than Junior Seau. I will get to that in a little bit. The fourth pick was linebacker Keith McCants, who's also no longer with us, dying of a drug overdose. McCants never developed into the player they thought he was going to be. He was actually a speedy linebacker, but never really amounted to anything. Played a total six NFL seasons, nothing to really write home about. And then 
There's the greatest linebacker in Charger history, Junior Seau. The 1990 Chargers would actually go 6-10, and 10, but Seau did play in all 16 games, starting 15 of them. He would have 85 tackles, one sack. Not a bad start to his career, but he would only get better. While the Chargers kind of were up and down. The next season, the team didn't do so well. They would go 4-12, and 12, but Seau would have 129 tackles and 7 sacks, starting in all 16 games. Now... 1992, the Chargers would actually start looking pretty good. They would go 11-5, and they actually looked amazing. Sale actually had two interceptions, 102 total tackles, four and a half sacks. They would win the division and beat the Kansas City Chiefs 17-0. They looked unstoppable. However, in the division conference game, they would lose to Miami 31-0, thus ending their season. The 1993 season, Seattle would again have two interceptions, 129 tackles, but this time zero sacks, but the Chargers would only go 8-8, eight eight, missing the playoffs. You started seeing a trend. The 1994 season, they would be back in the playoffs, even making it to the Super Bowl, going 11-5, and this was one of the best years that San Diego had had in their franchise. They looked unstoppable. Everything seemed to fall into place. In fact, they, Seattle would have 155 total tackles, Five and a half sacks, and they just looked unstoppable until they got to the Super Bowl and played the 49ers, who were led by Hall of Famer and Pro Bowler Steve Young, and of course, Hall of Famers Jerry Rice, Deion Sanders, Richard Dent, Bryant Young, and Ricky Jackson, just to name a few. The team was more than ready to hand an L to the Chargers. I'll just put it that way. And one of the worst losses in Super Bowl history. I mean, it's the biggest game you ever played, and they were just simply outmatched and outplayed. The final score was 49ers had 49 points, the Chargers 26. The Chargers were absolutely dominating the AFC, but that particular season, I don't think anybody was going to stop the 49ers. I'm just saying. The 1995 season wouldn't be much better. They would go 9-7, making the wild card. However, they would lose to the Colts 35-20. Major injuries to the running back, and I hate saying this, and I'm going to be saying it a lot. At best, a mediocre quarterback. The offense struggled, but the defense was solid. And yet again, Sayal would make another wonderful Pro Bowl. He had 130 tackles, two sacks, two picks. Not bad. This is where you started seeing a former two-time teammate of his, and also he was a two-time Pro Bowler, Rodney Harris. This is where you really got to see Harrison start picking up the Chargers were looking to make a move and they went with the new running back in hopes that they can make it to the playoffs however did not do well the 1996 season they would go on going eight and eight now I say that eight and eight it's not bad it's not terrible technically it's not a winning season it's not a losing season but imagine this Stan Humphreys is at best a mediocre quarterback. And I mean that with all due respect. And I mean that with all due respect, too. He was an NFL quarterback. I mean, how many people would say they played in the NFL? However, he was a guy that never had more than 20 touchdowns in a season. And again, I'll say it. At best, he was mediocre in the NFL. And I'll give you an example. The 1996 Oakland Raiders were using an aging veteran, 36-year-old Jeff Hostetler, who started only 13 games and threw 23 touchdowns. The Raiders were going 7-9. and nine. They had one less loss, or one more loss and one less win 
So, I mean, they were doing better numbers offensively. The Broncos, who had a 13-3 and John Elway, he threw 26 touchdowns in only 15 games. Humphreys, I mentioned, that same season would make 18 touchdowns and played in 15 games. After the 1996 season, Coach Bobby Ross would leave and take a much higher paying job with my Detroit Lions, going 47-33 as a Chargers coach. And again, not bad. You know, just not good enough, unfortunately. Chargers were desperate to find a coach. They found a coach with quarterback coach from the Jacksonville Jaguars, Kevin Gilbride. Who? The Chargers actually thought that he would actually be a huge help to Stan Humphreys. But let's face it, there was no making Stan Humphreys any better. 1997, Chargers was absolutely just terrible. They were dog poop. To say it nicely, they actually sucked going 4-12. and 12. Sale would actually play in 15 games. He'd had 97 tackles, 7 sacks, 2 picks. Not a bad season for him, but the team was hurting without a decent quarterback and without a decent coach. They also were struggling with the running game. With the second pick, the 1998 draft, they thought they had their answers, and they thought all their answers were going to come true. The first overall pick was a guy named Peyton Manning, by the way, in the 1998 draft. They picked quarterback Ryan Leaf, and sadly, if you know anything about NFL draft busts, then I don't need to explain anymore. In the same draft, they could have had Hall of Famers Randy Moss and Charles Woodson and Alan uh, Fanseca, who was a great offensive lineman. At quarterback, they also could have had pro bowlers Brian Greasy, who was a third-round pick, and Matt Hasselback, a three-time pro bowler who was actually a sixth-round pick. Hell, Jeff Saturday, who was undrafted, had more pro bowl seasons than Ryan Leaf actually played seasons with six of them. However... You can't necessarily see that somebody's a bust right away. Ryan Leaf actually did look like a decent quarterback if you watch his college tapes. Looking back, it, you know, I I think he kind of got a lot of heat because he didn't perform as well as you know he should have. The nineteen ninety eight Chargers were one of the worst in the NFL. In fact, they would have eleven total passing touchdowns and thirty four interceptions. Now you can't fully blame that all on the quarterbacks. Because the offensive line should have probably stepped up a little bit. Sale yet again was a pro bowler having 115 tackles for a pretty solid season right there. And three and a half sacks. Definitely a solid season for him. Another pro bowl season. And they would fire coach Kevin uh, Gilbride and promote June Jones to head coach who was a quarterback coach. Uh, June Jones would go three and seven the following season. But it was just too little too late as Gilbride was... Two and four, and they would go five and eleven on the season total. I wish I could say that the next coach would make it better, but again, with a terrible quarterback, it's almost impossible to win games. In 1998, the Chargers would go eight and eight. They would bring in an older veteran, aging veteran at that, Jim Harbaugh, who's now actually one of the best coaches in college, and he actually did pretty good. Again, not throwing a lot of touchdowns, but they did pretty good. The defense pretty much carried the team of course uh say on this particular season would only play in 14 games and definitely it hurt the team for him not to be there all season he had 98 tackles three and a half sacks one interception he'd also have two catches for eight yards as a tight end not bad so eight and eight not exactly the greatest year but it wouldn't exactly get better 
the following season, it would actually be one of the worst seasons, 2000 season. I hate saying this. Without a good quarterback, without any kind of run game, and at best, a mediocre coach, I mean, this team had no chance of going anywhere. They would go 1-15, and and yeah, they started off the season losing the first 11 games. Seattle, yet another Pro Bowl season, 123 tackles, 3.5 sacks, 2 picks. But the offensive numbers here, listen to this. They had a total of 19 touchdowns, 30 picks, and the quarterbacks were sacked 53 times. The team also had a total of 1,062 rushing yards for 7 touchdowns. Um, 3,500 yards receiving actually at 3,540 is the total, 3,540. And obviously I mentioned 19 touchdowns. Just to give you an idea what some of the rivalry teams that they would have, like the Raiders, led by Rich Gannon. The Raiders would go 12-4 with Rich Gannon, as I mentioned. They threw 28 touchdowns. 28 touchdowns and 11 interceptions just by himself. The team also would rush for 2,400 yards, actually, to be exact, 2,470 yards. Um, 23 touchdowns led by Tyrone Wheatley, who had 1,046 yards, literally 16 less yards than the Chargers had. The receiving core actually did pretty good at 3,400 yards, and actually 3,430 yards, less than what the Chargers had total, but they also mentioned 28 touchdowns. The Broncos would go 11-5, finishing second. And I mentioned a name earlier, Brian Greasy, who only played in 10 games, actually threw 10 or threw 19 touchdowns. Crazy. He played in only 10 games. Gus Farratt would add an extra nine, making it 28 total touchdowns for the team. A Terrell Davis, I guess, I wouldn't say he was on the team. He was on the team, but they're pretty much without him most of the season. They had over 2,300 yards with 2,311 yards total. Mike Anderson, who won Offensive Rookie of the Year, not bad season for him, 1,400-plus yards at uh, 1,487 yards. By himself, he literally had 400 yards more than the San Diego Chargers. Crazy to believe. That's just two of the teams. Now, the 2001 team, we see them start to grow, and they start becoming themselves a little bit. And I'm going to say something because you guys need to understand something here. They would go 5-11, and however you would start to see names that would start making NFL history. And there's two in particular names that actually would make NFL history, as you guys know. Definitely Drew Brees and Doug Flutie. All right, all right, all right. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's Drew Brees for sure and LaDainian Tomlinson, two Hall of Famers for sure, who were both drafted in the 2001 draft. Now, this time, Sale is 32 years old and is still a pro bowler. That season, he had 95 tackles, one sack, and a pick... But the team knew that time was ticking, and they had to fire Mike Riley, who had been, a, at best, a mediocre coach. And, you know, he, since then, he hasn't coached in the NFL. So that tells you something. Now they would bring in somebody who had an experience in the NFL, and that is actually a guy who is 59 years old, Marty Schottenheyer. One of the best coaches, in fact, he's my favorite Charger coach, I think, because I kind of remember him more than I remember the others. And this is coming from a Lions fan. Um, the 2002 Chargers would actually go 8-8 eight and eight with Drew Brees, who would get this stats. This is actually not bad. He would go, he'd throw 526 passes, completing 320 of them for 3,200-plus yards at 3,284 yards, 17 touchdowns. Not bad for a guy who was just in his second year. 
But then they had this guy that was starting to run. LaDainian Tomlinson would actually have an amazing season. 1,600 plus yards at 16, almost 1,700 yards. 1,683 yards, 14 touchdowns. Say I would only play in 13 games, but again, I mentioned it was a pro bowler. And still was one of the most feared. However, the team was starting to look better, but say I wanted to play on a team and start to win. That being said, on April 16th, the Miami Dolphins would trade for what's called a conditional draft pick, meaning that if Seahawks played in so many games, they would get a fifth-round pick. But if Seahawks didn't play in those many games, they would get a sixth-round pick. Seahawks would have played in 15 games, thus making it to where the Chargers got a fifth-round pick. However, they wouldn't do good enough. They would go 10-6, and six, missing the playoffs. However, Seahawks still looked good. 96 tackles, three sacks, not bad for a 34-year-old. Now the 2004 season, a little bit of a different story here. Seattle would get hurt, tearing his pectoral muscle, missing missing most of the season pretty much. He had he had played in eight games, having 57 tackles, one sack. And you started to see the slowly but surely fall of Junior Seattle. The Dolphins would go a disappointing 4-12. and 12. Now 2005, the Dolphins would bring in Nick Saban, who as I'm reading this right now, here we are in July of 2023. He has 280 career college wins. Not bad as a college coach, but his NFL career, not so much. Now, there was a guy I mentioned earlier, Gus Farratt, who had nine touchdowns one season with the, uh, with the Broncos as a backup quarterback. He would actually be the starting quarterback for the Miami Dolphins here in 2000, 2005. And they would go 9-7. and seven. Gus Farratt, who was not notoriously known for being a great passer, he had 18 touchdowns that season, 2,996 yards. He threw 494 times for 257 completions total. He also threw three, 13 interceptions. And this team was still kind of learning each other. However, Seau was getting up there in age. And this would be his one and only season with Nick Saban. The Dolphins knew he just didn't have what it took to be the greatest that he once was. So they wanted to move on. And they would release Seau March 6th of 2006. On August 14, 2006, Junior Seau would announce his retirement. Some people said during his retirement speech he was not himself. In fact, he referred to his retirement speech as a quote-unquote graduation and that he would be moving on to the next phase in his life. However, on August 18th of 2006, just 44 days later, Junior Seattle announced that he was signing with the New England Patriots. Now, I don't need to mention who the quarterback of the Patriots was, do I? I mean, he might be one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. His name's Tom Brady. But they also had a defensive-headed coach. Like, and I, I, don't, I don't mean just defensive head coach. I mean, no, defensive-minded coach. Bill Belichick, who actually coached for a lot of years. And as I say this again, I'm saying this here in July 2020. 23, 2023, he has eight Super Bowl rings. <laughs> it's crazy. He's sitting at 298 wins, 152 losses, and he's 31 and 13 in the playoffs. And again, eight Super Bowl rings. The man's a GOAT. The 2005 Patriots, you know, the previous seasons, they were 10 and 6, missing 
a few parts to the team's success. They just didn't know what they were. They were hoping that Seau would, would help. Now, Seau would play in 11 games the following season. He he had, would start 10 of them. He had 69 tackles, giggity, and one stack. Not bad for a 37-year-old. The Pats would go 12-4, and four, losing to the Coles in the conference championship game, 38-34. to 34. Still not bad. And, oh, by the way, Tom Brady, get this, through for... 516 passes, 319 completions, 3,529 yards, and 24 touchdowns. Just throwing that out there. Now, Seau was on a good team. And when you're on a good team, you want to stay. So they signed him to a two-year deal. But they didn't know what they were getting themselves into. They didn't know how good this team was going to be. They bring in a guy named Randy Moss, and all of a sudden, Tom Brady's starting to look even better. In fact, Tom Brady would do so good, they would go 16-0. and And this is Tom Brady's stats. I'm just throwing this out there. He threw for 578 uh, passes, 398, which were complete, completed 4,806 yards. 4,806 yards, almost 5,000 yards. Cra- crazy. Oh, and he threw 50 touchdowns. By the way, that's like literally... Almost half of uh, Stan Humphrey's career touchdowns just in one season. Seattle played in all 16 games, starting in four of them. The 38-year-old had three picks. I mentioned that for a reason. I'll tell you in one second. 73 tackles and three and a half sacks. I specifically said three picks for a reason to start it off. It was a career high at 38 years old. Now, here he is. He's 39 years old, and his, his age is starting to show. He would play in four games, starting two of them. He was hurt most of the season. He had 22 tackles, but the Pats would go 11-5 and sadly missed the playoffs, finishing second in the division. Now here it is. Seau is 40 years old and is heading into the final season. Now he was a free agent for most of the season after week four win against the Baltimore Ravens. The Pats were like, we need somebody to come help some of these guys. We got this young kid named Jared Mayo and another young kid named Gary Guy. Gaten, who I don't know who it is, but they wanted them to be better linebackers, and they figured, why not bring in Junior Seau to basically coach? However, he would play in seven games, only having four, 14 tackles. Patriots would go 10-6, and six, make the playoffs, but unfortunately, they would lose the wild card game to the Ravens, 33-14. And I mentioned Jared Mayo would actually have a pretty decent career. Guyton, I had never heard of him up until this point, but they brought him in to basically coach, and Sale knew at this point that it was time for him to hang it up. January 13, 2010, he actually would announce that he is retiring. Sale would have major gambling issues after his career was over, but that was not the worst of his issues. During Sale's career, he took many headshots and had many concussions. This unfortunately affected his personal life. He would battle with depression and, of course, gambling. Friends and family would say you never knew what kind of junior sale you would get. You would either get the lovable, fun-loving father, or you would get a man who just stared into oblivion. Just some quotes I'm reading. A man that was also afraid of demons. On October 18, 2010, junior sale was arrested for domestic dispute. However, no charges would be filed. Hours after his arrest, he would be in the tabloids again. Hard hard to read this a little bit. 
hours after his arrest, he would drive off a cliff in his SUV. Seau would claim that he fell asleep. However, family, including some of his kids, feel like it was not because he fell asleep. It was actually intentional. It's hard to read some of this stuff. Um, you know, your idols. <sighs> Hold on. You know, dealing with depression, it's definitely hard to read some of this stuff and to know, you know, he almost did something bad and he would do something bad. Um, but I mentioned, you know, there was a reason and I, I think that for special occasions, God will forgive him for some of these. Um, on February 17, 2011, Dave Dewerson would take his own life. Dave was a former NFL player, four-time Pro Bowler, considered to be one of the greatest Chicago Bears uh, defensive backs. He would actually send out a text to his family saying that he wanted his brain to be looked at and tested for CTEs. And he would actually be confirmed to have CTE. Seau would struggle with headaches and also with depression throughout all this time and said that he was always looking for answers and wondered if certain people would get that. You know, this is where it's going to get really hard. On the morning of May 2nd, 2012, Junior would send a group text to his kids and his ex-wife saying, I love you. None of the kids would respond. Not because they didn't love their dad, but because right at that time, finals was going on. There was a lot going on in school. And most of them were, you know, just trying to do what kids would do. Um, obviously, later now, knowing what would happen. Yeah. Um, his then girlfriend would would go out, would want to go for a workout. He would tell her, please, no, don't go. Apparently, he had a quote-unquote blank face to which she said, I need to go work out, and she went to go work out. Anyways, not knowing what was about to happen. His girlfriend got out of her workout and tried to call Seau, but it went straight to voicemail. She would go home, park her car in the garage, then go upstairs to the room where she would see Seau's leg on the floor. She thought he was trying to play, so she would try to sneak up and jump on him, come to find out he had a gunshot wound to the chest. As I said, she thought it was a joke. Junior Seau would tragically kill himself. He was only 43 years old. He shot himself in the heart because most believed that he wanted them to study his brain. On January 10, 2013, Seau's family released the studies of Junior Seau's CTE scans. And yes, he did suffer from CTE. Seau would be inducted into the Hall of Fame 2015. Most definitely well-deserved achievement. Junior Seau had an amazing career, ending up with um, 1,847 tackles, 56 and a half sacks, and 18 interceptions. No doubt about it. Well-deserved Hall of Famer. He left behind three boys and a girl. And it's a sad story, but that was the life and death of Junior Seau. I want to thank you all for listening to the podcast. This was only supposed to be a two-part, but we decided to make it a three-part. You guys are all amazing. Y'all have a wonderful, wonderful day, and thank you for listening to the podcast.